Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with Dean Neil Fulton of the USD Knutson School of Law about what's new at the law school and some of his thoughts on how to engage others in the wake of the pandemic. Dean Fulton, how are you this afternoon? I'm great, Michael. How are you? Good. Um, well, first of all, I guess we haven't spoken to you in a little while. What's new at the law school? You know, like everyone, it's surviving a year with COVID and all the limitations and challenges that has presented to us. But also new is another crop of 1Ls. You know, we had 65 incoming students with great credentials, excited to be new lawyers. And since the last time we talked, we're the University of South Dakota Knutson School of Law. So that's a really exciting development. Well, talk to us a little bit about the Knutson School of Law. I mean, what was significant about that change? Um, what will that add to the experience here at the law school? You know, a couple of things. First is obviously that uh, there's an endowed gift of $12.5 million to fund student scholarships in perpetuity. And the only condition is that it go to scholarships. So it can go to merit-based, need-based, particular initiatives uh, now or in the future that help us grow as a school. And the other thing, it associates us with Dave Knudsen, who, although not a USD law alum, is a USD alum and is a longtime servant as a private practitioner, member of the legislature, and businessman in South Dakota, who's just a great example of everything you can do as a lawyer in South Dakota to serve your community, to excel in your craft, and to be a leader. So, you know, every student that walks in the door now see Dave's name on the door and is inspired to try and follow his example. You know, you mentioned that the money was going to be dedicated to student scholarships. Why is student scholarships specifically so significant um, for, I guess, the competitiveness of the law school? Well, you know, part of it is that law schools compete really intensely right now on scholarships and students are very sensitive to price. But more importantly for me, uh, it's two things. One is that we are the state's law school and I never want to see a talented South Dakota kid not be able to chase their dream of becoming a lawyer because of cost. So that's first and foremost, is that everybody should have an opportunity to be a lawyer if they'd like to. Um, Secondly, whenever you have a scholarship investment, I heard someone talk about this the other day who got a scholarship and they said, I believed in myself, but a scholarship said that somebody else believed in me. So for us, it's a chance to tell students as they are coming in the door that we as a law school and the folks who've invested in the law school believe in them too. And that you know, reinforcement of those students' dreams and the belief in themselves is really important in the tough times of law school that we all have where, you know, maybe your confidence is shaken a little bit. You know, one of the things that we wanted to talk to you today about um, is some of the publications that you've been working on. Um, one of them was about COVID. You talked about sort of this year was just about surviving COVID in a lot of ways for, you know, any business, government, institution, university, um, everyone who was just trying to figure out how to deal with it, how to react to it. Um, and in one of the articles, you, you kind of talked about the varying ways, I guess, governments responded to COVID-19. First of all, can you just tell us a little bit about what that article was about um, and maybe what what ultimately you think we should draw from it? Yeah, you know, it's an article that actually started uh, during the long walks I took uh, when the gym was closed down when COVID struck. And I was looking at how people really responded in different ways to the burdens that COVID imposed, particularly really what's the most trivial burden, mask requirements imposed by local governments or even private businesses. And I saw, you know, really violent 
sometimes literally violent reactions to mask requirements often phrased in constitutional language. And I thought about why people phrase their objections that way and how it ties to a certain view of the Constitution as this very individualistic document as opposed to a communally based document and what that means for our assertion of rights and our living in community. Uh, and I don't think it's much that's good, but that is really kind of where the start of that article came from. Well, why do you think, I guess, that you know, something like a public health response became a referendum on like a concept like liberty as opposed to maybe other values like life or community? I mean, why, why was, I guess, language borrowed from the Constitution? Um, how did that insert itself into this debate? You know, one of the things I think is historically as Americans, we speak in legal language in a way that a lot of nations and societies don't. Uh, Tocqueville observed that. And so part of it's just in the air in the United States that we talk about things a lot of ways um, through the law, through the language of law. The second thing I really see is as you watch our engagement with the Constitution over time, it has evolved consistently towards being about discussions of individual rights rather than communal structure. The founders were very concerned with structural guarantees of liberty. They really looked at how the system created a community that kept us all safe and free. Over time, more of our discussions are about my freedom as opposed to our freedom. And I think those are things that are both plausible. You can have communal freedom and you can have individual freedom. And I think how we think about it is significant. If we think only about our individual freedom and none of the costs on the larger community of that freedom, it is a view of freedom, but it's one that's harder to sustain. If we think about our collective freedom and our collective guarantee of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, Sometimes that leads us to sacrifice individual freedom in the sense of exactly what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it for a larger good. And that's really what I saw in the discussion of particularly masks that this just exceedingly trivial burden on my desire to do exactly what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it for the collective benefit was just something people refused to do and they couched it in the language of constitutionally based freedom. You know, specifically about masks, I think that, you know, I remember reading articles that talked about the, you know, varying degrees of support and it seemed to become at a certain point, almost like a partisan issue. Um, one article I read talked about just the geographic nature of how the pandemic kind of rolled out across the United States. It mainly hit urban areas first. Um, and, and maybe that contributed to kind of almost this, you know, political partisan divide. Um, I, I'm wondering with your research, where do you think this kind of divide comes from? You know, I, I think as it progressed, you definitely saw masks as a very visual representation of partisan division. A lot of communities and states that lean more Republican were taking sort of anti-mask approaches. And a lot of jurisdictions that lean slightly more Democratic were very pro-mask. But I would go even one step further back because set aside the government requirements of masks, what struck me was that this 
phrasing of individual constitutional right was asserted by a lot of folks, not only against government, but against other private actors. You saw folks who refused to wear masks in a business, where another private citizen was imposing a requirement in their place of business for the safety and security of themselves and their employees, their judgment about how to provide a safe work environment. And other people who wanted to go into that store would say, well, I've got a right to one, come in your store and do so on my terms. So what was fascinating to me is transcending the political partisan divide on this was a lot of folks who, you know, you would think would lean right, lean Republican, assert the rights of businesses to regulate themselves and their place of business. Um, it wasn't always breaking down that way because it, it was going back to this primacy of the individual. And I think that cut across the partisan divide a little bit, too. You know, from almost like a ontological viewpoint, I mean, I do you think that people just were upset that they had to, like, do something like wear a mask, that it was this daily reminder that the world had shifted beneath their feet in unimaginable ways. I mean, I think about that when, you know, we, I think we all have these stories of like walking into a Hy-Vee or a Walmart and someone almost like an adult throwing like a temper tantrum about wearing a mask. We all kind of like saw that. And I guess in those moments, I tried to be more empathetic than judgmental because I was like, this isn't about the mask, clearly. This is about something deeper than than just a mask. I mean, do you think that even the divides that, that are specifically focused on something like a public policy choice, like wearing a mask, do you think that we're talking about something deeper here or, or was it just the inconvenience of, of having to put on a mask for, you know, 20 minutes? I think both. I mean, certainly as this has worn on, I've had moments where I don't want to wear my mask. I, I don't want to stay six feet apart. I don't want to do these things. And in the initial stages, the fear that we all felt and the uncertainty, you know, people lashing out against that. I think that's an accurate assessment. What I think is more interesting, though, is knowing that that's the case. And as time has gone on and knowing that this requires a collective response, how we talked about it as a community and how our leaders talked about it was really striking. That a lot of times leaders failed to talk about communal responsibility, collective action. And that's a really distinct response to what you saw in New Zealand, where I know, you know, it's an island nation, you can have discussions about whether that makes keeping numbers lower, certainly. But Jacinda Hearn talked from the get go about our collective responsibility to each other to manage this. And I think just that discussion of how we respond and why is imperative because it does get to this this deeper question that you're talking about of how we look at each other in society and how we treat each other in society and it's you know it's one of the fundamental discussions about structuring governance uh, going back to Aristotle whether we view ourselves as individual actors or whether we see ourselves as a larger connected community with obligations to each other as well as opportunities for ourselves. You know, this might be a loaded question, but do you feel like when people you when, when people dress these arguments up in concepts like liberty, do you think that that is genuine? Do you think that there is a uh, risk in speaking in like such hyperbolic terms about about some of these issues? I mean, I just think about like where we go from here, right? Like if, you know, the most difficult thing we 
you know, one of the most difficult things we had to do to get over, you know, the pandemic was like wear a mask. I, I think about like other situations in which our country might be asked for a more difficult collective response, a larger sacrifice. I mean, is there something that maybe we collectively can learn from this to like put into practice the next time we face a real national emergency? I mean, how do you see the tenor of like the, the national dialogue continuing from here on out? Well, you know, come back to dialogue in a minute and just talking to each other with respect and from a place of love, I think, is imperative. But thinking about rights, you're right. I mean, how we think about rights is important. And I really am inspired by the work of Marianne Glendon, who talks about rights and responsibilities. And one of the things that was striking to me in the discussion of so many of the folks who said, well, I've got a right to not do this it was often asserted against another person's right. I have a right to not wear a mask in your place of business. I'm laying down a right, which is often a trump. And I think there's another way to think of rights, which is our collectively negotiated and recognized limits on what society can compel any of us to do and to sustain those, we have to always balance rights against responsibilities. So the thing that was really striking to me and concerning was you saw a lot of discussion of rights, which I think is a very good discussion. It's necessary to structuring our self-governance. But I really believe that discussions of rights have to be balanced with discussions of responsibility to have sustainable rights and sustainable communities. And that was what was missing to me in a lot of these discussions. Well, unfortunately, that, although that might be the most difficult you know, thing to discuss, you wrote another article that talked about, I guess, engaging with you know, other people who um, you know, have different viewpoints. And you talked about, I guess, like three principles for effective engagement. Can you just describe to us you know, what, what those principles are and how, how do we you know, deploy those in our own lives a little bit more? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a couple things about that this year, and I think one of them I would just summarize as, as starting from a place of love, right? I mean, we, you, you see this really, really high-temperature political discourse right now. There's no overlap. There's, there's no room for compromise. And I think one of the things that's missing in that is starting by looking at our political opponents not as someone to be destroyed, right? But someone who is a human being titled to respect and love, right? So I think starting from this place of openness, respect, and, and I really couch it in terms of love, whether you root that either in religion or secular humanism, I think both ideas get you to the same place that we start with all of our engagements being rooted on fundamental human dignity. I think then, you know, getting to openness, uh, it's important for us to really hear another person, uh, take in what they're saying, not immediately try and think about how to win the argument, but how to solve the problem. So working from respect to openness. And then I think working towards common good solutions, always being oriented at what we can do together as opposed to how I win and you lose. How do we both get... 75% of what we want to our collective benefit, as opposed to being happier that you got zero of what you wanted than in fact, as it turned out, so did I. You know, in one of the articles you shared, uh, you know, a humorous story, you know, 
it was a, a tense situation. You interjected some humor. I don't, first of all, I, don't, I wonder if you could just tell us the story. Um, but then also, I wanted to know if you had any other time or any other stories from your time as chief of staff that the maybe statute of limitations has run out on <laughs> that you might be able to share. Uh, well, think about that for a second. But the immediate story I was thinking about was um, a, a good friend who was in the legislature, and and we were in really contentious budget negotiations one year, and um, Governor Rounds was out, you know, working the media well and telling his story and. Um, my friend who was in the legislature disagreed with that, called me up, was mad, and he said, hey, let's come down and talk about it. And so he, uh, he came in and uh, sat down, and I, uh, I had a, a stash of Canadian whiskey in my desk, and I sort of turned around and slammed it down on my desk, and I said, do you want to talk or fight? Uh, and he kind of looked at me nonplussed, and I said, well, do you want to sit down and have a drink and talk about this or go out in the parking lot and settle it? And it was just sort of one of those kind of tension-breaking moments. And we sat down and initially talked about everything but work. Uh, and that kind of humanized the moment and reminded us uh, that there were bigger things, our family, what we cared about, that we both cared about South Dakota. And we actually made some progress on resolving a budget impasse. But that's the, that's the genesis of the story. I mean, I, I feel like we hear these stories, though, all the time, like, you know, a representative from the Republican Party um, and the Democratic Party, they'll they'll figure out that they can like carpool on the way to Washington together, that they're always on the same connection flight. And it, it's that type of experience when, you know, they, they get to know somebody on the other you know side of the aisle that they can sort of see this shared humanity. I mean, it's easy to just say, well, we just need to treat people better. We need to treat our opposition, you know, a little bit better. I mean, are there structural changes that we need to start considering to incentivize cooperating a little bit more? I mean, and if so, what would those even be? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you can really think pretty extensively about structural change. Um, I don't think the founders would tell you that their intention was that the founding documents endure forever without change. I mean, they built in an amendment process. And whether you look at the work of Lee Drutman, uh, other folks writing about restructuring our electoral pro uh, process, uh, ranked choice voting, a lot of those structural things, I think you can do that. But what I would keep coming back to is the thing that we all can do, because not all of us are in Congress, not all of us are in the legislature where we can implement those policy changes. What each of us can do is start by cracking open our hearts and, and looking at the person across from us. I, I know I keep using this phrase of love, right? But from a place of love and respect. We lose that in a lot of ways right now. Modern society isolates us. The internet as our primary forms of communication isolates us. We have a lot of our conversations with our thumbs, not looking somebody in the eye. That's terribly isolating. COVID has not helped. We've all been living in our basement for about 14 months. Um, and so I think starting with engagement and engaging people from this position of respect is imperative because unless we have that, unless we have shared recognition of our humanity, unless we have shared commitment to communal activity for our collective benefit, we won't get to the structural changes. The structural changes are important but the motivation behind them is the imperative part to me. 
You know, the last article that you shared with me um, was also, I think, a, about a lot of the concepts that, that we've been discussing, but it was a book review, and it was specifically about, I guess, you know, some of the educational pedagogy that goes into a law school. What's the purpose of a law school? And I feel like a lot of these conversations, again, are like ad nauseum. Should there be a third year? Um, you know, do we need more you know, practical uh, you know, type of coursework? Is the bar exam relevant anymore? I mean, from your perspective as the dean of a, of a law school, I mean, what do you hope every graduate of the Knutson School of Law like leaves with when, when they graduate um, here in a few weeks? You know, uh, it wouldn't be a conversation with me if it didn't say excellent service leadership, right? I mean, I, I hope they leave with those values really ingrained and that they can excel in their craft, that they should serve the people around them, that they should lead in their communities. What I would tell you is a metaphor I used when I was thinking about applying to be dean, and uh, it's run towards the fire, right? I mean, one of the things I would want any lawyer who graduates from this law school to feel is the imperative to run towards the fire, to, to run towards a problem that they see in the world and start working with other people to figure out how to solve it. So I, I want them to be people who are inclined to recognize their ability, to have the inclination and the tools to solve our most pressing problems. The other thing I would really say that I hope they take away from this is for good and bad, this is a very small connected law school. And you know this, Michael, I haven't spent three years here. Uh, you have to find ways to engage with the people around you with respect, with dignity, with love, because even your best friends at some point, you're a little bit tired of around here. And I think that's a unique trait that we're able to impart in this small connected place is for people to have the orientation and the ability to disagree with each other without being disagreeable. I, best way I could try and summarize all of that is what I told the one L's at orientation this year. I want you to spend three years getting, getting comfortable being uncomfortable, getting comfortable with uncomfortable topics and conversations, living in those uncomfortable spaces, because that's where we solve the most important problems we face. You know, one of the things that, that you you know, evaluated in the article was just this idea of, of objective truth and, and the notion that law schools should be, I guess, encouraging their graduates to go out and sort of seek these notions of good and, and put them into practice. I mean, do you think that's a real goal? Do you think that law schools can manageably achieve that? Philosophical objective truth is probably beyond what the law accommodates, right? Because the issues that are presented to us almost inherently lack that. Um, I do think we can promote and help students understand more lasting values, right? I mean, we wrestle with fundamental questions of equity and inclusion in the ideas of equal protection under the law. You know, we we wrestle with those in what it means to provide someone due process. And so I don't know if law schools can resolve them. I think you probably have to go to the philosophy department to do that. But I definitely think that law schools can help us wrestle with those ideas 
on sustainable terms in concrete ways better than a lot of other disciplines can. I mean, I think at our best, law schools are training lawyers to set the rules that we are prepared to live with in society and the rules about how we make and enforce the rules more fundamentally. A lot, you know, almost any statute or court case could have come out the other way. Very few of them are sure things. I mean, you've taken nothing away from the last three years, Michael, you should take that away. But I think for us, the commitment to a process, both in the habits of mind and in our structure, uh, those things preserve the other things. And I think that's the thing that law schools uniquely do. You know, one thing that you've said to me before, and I think it's a favorite phrase of yours, but I'm, I'm curious if you could unpack maybe what it means, but you, you've often said, we should plant trees, not flowers. Hmm. And I, I wonder if that almost has a connection to what we're talking about right now with, with the purpose of a law school. I mean, wh what do you mean by that phrase? You know, so plant trees, not flowers was a phrase I, I really kind of used with folks around development and fundraising. I said that um, planting flowers is easy and they bloom and they're beautiful, but they die fast. Trees takes a lot of work. Uh, but they endure and they shade us for generations. And I said that whatever we're doing around the law school has to be planting trees, not flowers. It has to be not for the next report to the ABA or the next round of U.S. News rankings. It has to be for us, me as dean, us as a faculty, you as students, to be looking 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road and trying to make changes that are transformative for generations and sustainable. So thinking about the next generation, not the next case or the next election. And it really, you know, although I talk about it a lot in the context of, of development work and fundraising, it applies to everything we do here. So where do you think the law school, I mean, I know it's not just one person, but where does the law school go from here? I mean, we were, we were, it's the first years of the Knutson School of Law, obviously. Um, but but what, what's, what's the Knutson School of Law look like maybe in five years? You know, I, I certainly always hope we look like we have looked since 1901 in the sense that we are the place that leaders for South Dakota communities and the surrounding world come from. That we are the place where students who want to make a difference in their community want to come to get those tools, that we are a place that gives students an education that makes them excellent at the craft, that gives them a community that orients them towards service and puts them in a tradition of leadership in their state, their world. So I hope we continue to be a place that generates leaders. And I hope that we continue to be the home of the law in South Dakota. I really genuinely believe this. You know, I've told you this before, um, USD is not my alma mater, but it's my law school. As a South Dakota lawyer, it's just the place that has shaped me and its graduates have shaped me and mentored me. And so continuing that tradition, I think is imperative. So. I hope we are a stronger uh, community 
advancing those values of excellence, service leadership, and being the home of the law in South Dakota. At the end of, of most of our podcast interviews, you know, I usually ask a question, what do you know for sure? You've already had to answer that question once before, so I won't ask it again. But I, I probably wasn't sure then. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> and I wonder if, if maybe what you know for sure has changed a little bit with the pandemic. I feel like that it's been an hmm. introspective experience for you know, everyone. And if you haven't been introspective, you, you haven't been paying attention, right? So I wonder if, if are there any takeaways from the last... 12 months, 14 months that um, you just think about or, or you know that you will put into practice kind of the rest of your life? Maybe. Um, I don't know what they are yet. Um, you know, I don't know that it will be the formative event for me like some other things have been. Um, I think I've had other personal events that really shaped me in ways that I'll never change from. One of the things I really hope I've taken away from this is patience and perseverance. Because when I think about the times when my response, either personally or as dean, has been not as good as it could be, it's been the times where I was impatient about getting to a solution or where my perseverance broke down a little bit and I started to feel like, well, we'll never get through this. Um, I think the darkest times for us require our patience and our perseverance. The other thing that I really take away from this is the need for community. and. Over the last 12 months, the thing that I have felt most profoundly as dean, as a, as a failure of leadership, and I really do think it at times has been, is a failure to really sustain the community and create events through alternative means that sustain community. What's been gratifying, though, even just in recent weeks, as I watched your class get ready to graduate, as I've seen us actually start to have a few events, that was happening and I didn't see it. You know, I know from students who had small groups of community and I know from faculty that were having Zoom meetings and things like that, um, that community survived. And so taking away the value of community and that it, it endures, uh, that's a takeaway. Patience, perseverance, and community. That might be my three takeaways from law school right there. Um, before we conclude this podcast, I guess, you know, you mentioned that I'll be graduating here in May. Do you have any, I guess, you know, preview of, of what you might tell our, our graduating class? <laughs> uh, well, the, uh, the funny answer would be no, because the speech isn't done. Uh, but you know me well enough to know, Michael, that I've been writing it in my head for a while. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think that you can look forward to hearing a little bit about calibrating your, your personal compass, uh, what the points of that compass are, and how you should always let them lead you home. Dean Fulton, thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. Thank you for coming on this podcast so many times. You've always been really just generous with your time. We've always really appreciated it. And on a personal level, just thank you so much um, for your involvement in my life. Law school has uh, been a you know 
important three years for me and you were an essential a part of that um, experience. So just thank you so much. Thank you for your friendship and go Yotes. Go Yotes. <laughs>